0: attention please.
1: My name's Eleanor Hamilton and although you probably don't know me, you might have shouted at me when I tell you you're going to be late for work. It's my voice that tells you when your train is about to arrive on the London Underground. This is Covent Garden. And if you're based in the West Midlands, then you'll have heard me on the tram. The next tram to arrive on Platform 4 is to Grand Central for Birmingham Gateway. I work alongside my husband, Phil Sayer, who's the voice of many safety announcements above and below ground. But the one he's most famous for is this.
0: Mind the gap.
1: The thing is that we're not automated voices. We're real. And I'd like to say that we're living and breathing. But one of us isn't anymore. Phil died in 2016, but his voice recordings still exist. So he's still working alongside me in tube tunnels every single day. I love that we're still together in work, even though we can't be together in person. But we're not the only voices with a story. Almost everyone you hear on buses, trains, TV adverts, and down phone lines is real. We've all lived and we all have tales to tell. And you know our voices well, without really knowing us at all. So I'm going to change that by telling you their tales from the tannoy. In this episode, I'm going to talk to the voice inside your sat-nav.
0: Please take the first exit at the roundabout onto the A322.
1: John Briggs is a journalist, broadcaster and voiceover artist who's probably best known as the original voice of Siri. His calm, steady tones keep you safe on the road. He lives in your pocket and usually speaks when you didn't ask him to. I don't understand. And you might even remember him as the voice on that tea-time TV favourite, The Weakest Link.
0: As the only player to get all her answers wrong, Rachel is the weakest link.
1: He's famous for sounding completely in control. But in real life, John, you've not been able to control absolutely everything. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, there's there's one instance, really, I think there's one you're, you're referring to. Um, i am been lucky. I was blessed with uh, with with good genes and, and, and good health. Um, I think I'd been in hospital when I was... Thirteen to have my wisdom teeth removed, so to suddenly find myself in in hospital again, was quite a surprise. Because in two thousand and seventeen, um, I ended up having a heart attack. Most unexpectedly, I don't drink and I don't smoke. I eat relatively healthily.
1: Don't order the cholesterol special when you go to the
0: greasy spoon well try not to i certainly don't now (laughs) nowadays i don't and and the only thing that came up i used to go for the occasional booper sort of you know wellness man wellness checks Mm. and they charge you 500 quid for the privilege and i'm in a very privileged position that i can pay that sort of money for it but they charge you 500 quid and come back and say yeah your cholesterol's a bit high and you're going is that all is that all i just paid you 500 quid could you not have found something and this is the thing i've learned about heart attacks is they don't actually occur to the people you think they might.
1: No, I think that we can quite often look at somebody in the streets, and we're very judgy, aren't we? I know who I am. No, of and <laughs> and think, oh, that's a heart attack waiting to happen. Yeah. But actually, you're, you don't look like somebody that I would immediately have down in in that category.
0: No, and I'm six foot tall. I weigh, depending on whether it's a good year or a bad year, somewhere between thirteen and a half stone and fifteen stone, mm-hmm. and I'll have that fluctuation. I'm no athlete. I don't enjoy the gym, um, but I do enjoy a good walk. Alcohol, pretty much allergic to. Um, really? Yes. Never yeah. been good at being out of control. Um, you know, a glass of champagne here and there, but no, I'm always designated driver because
1: mm. alcohol's
0: never really done much for me. Which is one of the other things you'd think of, and and no, I'm not sitting there with cheeseburgers and an armadillo. <laughs> I was going to was gonna know, say a every, cocaine,
1: on the other hand, every other day. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of spice (laughs) But
0: yeah That was the thing that was oddest And so It started in my Right shoulder blade In my back And Then it kind of progressed Towards my neck And then it went around The front of my neck And when I say it You have to imagine The dullest ache You've ever come across This didn't dissipate It just kept going Or you know sometimes If you slept awkwardly Yep And you wake up and you think, oh, 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 I've trapped a nerve, I've got a muscle Oh, oh, if I just lean to the left and raise my elbow, oh, that's better. Oh, yeah, oh, no, oh, okay, that's better, that's better. Uh, And you can alleviate it by moving the muscles. Mm. There was no position I could find where this pain would go away. The next stage was to take some sulpidine, major, major painkiller. Didn't touch it. Uh, Then thought... Um, Because I was thinking this is indigestion. This is indigestion or muscle. And this is the commonest thing people say about having a heart attack. Is oh, I thought it was indigestion. Mm. And then did the, you know, warming up the pillow full of, you know, oats or plastic beads. You know, stick it in the microwave, wrap it around the back of your neck. Hope it doesn't
1: explode, that kind of thing, yeah.
0: Not a sausage. Nothing Mm. helped. That didn't go anywhere near it. So a friend of mine who happened to be staying was going, look, I'm taking you to a and E. I I said, oh... Oh, really? I don't know where the nearest A&E is. I knew they closed the one in the nearest town to me. Mm. So they said, Well, you put it in
1: your sat nav and directed (laughs) yourself to the hospital.
0: That would have been one idea, (laughs) wouldn't it? Yes. (laughs) Take me to the nearest accident and emergency. I'm sorry. Did you say you I wanted a light bulb? (laughs) Uh, So they rang 111 and uh, the chap on the end of the phone said, Can I speak to the gentleman in question? So he spoke to me for about 30 seconds. He said, You're having a heart attack. I'm sending a blue light. Wow. And I just went. Oh, really? Because actually, all I wanted was somebody just to take the pain away. That mm. was all. Didn't care about anything else. I just want, just find a position where this ache stops. Mm. And then the paramedics did too. and In fact, there was one paramedic. It was a a quiet night, obviously, luckily. Mm. Uh, And actually, they spent most of the time while they were kind of going, is there a free bed? Can we get him checked in? Is he available? They spent the whole time going, oh, yeah, I'm on a double shift at the moment, but I think I'm going to go on to half shifts because half shifts are, are, are what they're trying to make me do at the moment. Are you on half shifts, Matt? Greg? Greg, are you on half shifts yet? And I was just thinking, thinking, I'm sitting here with a heart attack. I mean, surely, you know, aren't I the most important thing in the room?
1: But I suppose in some ways it's probably quite comforting to think that nobody's raising the red flag and going, quick, get this guy under...
0: There um, was nobody doing CPR, yeah. What they administered is a thing called glycerin trinitrate. That's the one. Uh, Because, amazingly, how, how on earth they figured this out, if you spray that under your tongue... It expands the arteries around your heart. So right. They all, they all get sort of bigger, so allowing blood flow. Bless the NHS, they, they did everything they could, but they are completely overwhelmed. And it took me five days before they did st- stick a couple of stents in, mm. and they did pump you out the other side, saying, "Take these for the rest of your life. See you next time, if if needed." If um, you're still alive. Yes. So <laughs> they're, they're brilliant at treating the condition. They just weren't very good at treating me, the individual. But that's because the system is under so much strain that they don't have time to start going, Okay, let's look at your lifestyle, let's look at how you live, and let's figure out what is right for you personally uh, moving forward.
1: But I suppose we live in an age, and <laughs> I mean, the irony is that you could probably um, ask Siri to tell you <laughs> how to avoid a heart attack or what to do or whatever. You know, we are, we're all able to look at our phones or look at mm. Google or whatever and find this information out for ourselves, which is really useful.
0: Uh, listen, the really exciting thing is is where AI and 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 our mobile devices, our smartphones, who are, which are very smart, mm. will go medically. Uh, so if you talk to any of the people in Palo Alto and places like that that are doing the research, research they realize that the health data that they are collecting even via just your watch Mm. or the fact of the way you're walking to or the temperature of your body when your phone is in contact with it Mm. gives away an awful lot about how healthy you are Mm. so the next massive explosion is to do that only harness it much more directly with either receptors or sensors on your clothing or under your skin or actually little robots Nano robots that will kind of skim around your blood system, constantly testing you and reporting back to your to your smartphone.
1: And is this something that's really going to? happen? Oh,
0: absolutely. No, this is this is not science fiction. This is science science wow. fact. Uh, and this is ongoing. It is not that far away. You're probably talking in the next ten years.
1: I have noticed on on the iPhone that you can put the health data in, and I, I noticed one recently which said sexual activity. And I thought, you know, apart from the fact, how dare you? Who is going to be... Hang on just a minute, love, before
0: you fart and roll over, can I just put this into my phone? It lasted for 17 minutes, (laughs) and it was probably a four out of (laughs) ten. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, but, but all part of it. I mean, you know, I'm afraid there's numerous uh, examples of people who've collapsed and died of a heart attack, uh, of a cardiac arrest, I should say, do, uh, while they're having sex. Cause really?
1: Well, I, mean, I suppose if you're going to go... Go happy. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, hopefully.
0: I mean, it might have been a terrible experience. <laughs> might you have been know, a four
1: out of ten. But yes. even so, you know, as, as miserable experiences go, it's probably not a bad version of a miserable experience. I would take know?
0: that, you know, 75, uh, pop my in the middle of, you know, um, making love to a very beautiful girl. <laughs>
1: Um, so how did having the heart attack, because I remember we, we've spoken about this before, that um, having the heart attack actually made you feel, it had a massive psychological impact on you.
0: Yeah, this is the thing that, that, that nobody ever talks about. Mm. Nobody ever comments. Uh, number one, you can't see I've had a heart attack. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing. Number two, it actually makes you quite, well, it made me quite angry because I thought, well, I've tried to live healthily, I've tried to do the right things, and yet you came and got me anyway. And whatever, consistently, something about what I was eating and indeed how perhaps little exercise I was taking um, was, was adding up and going, you know, sorry, uh-uh. To me, this has been a warning shot across the bows. Right. To a lot of people, I would suspect, unless I'd had someone there going, I'm going to take you to A&E because I wouldn't have gone myself. Mm. I would have just gone, this is really nasty. I had a really nasty case of the worst indigestion I've ever had. To me, this has has been a wake-up call, whereas others, I think, would ignore it. And then five years down the line, when things are really clogged, Inside would just drop dead and I think that happens quite a bit mm. particularly with men who just go oh we're just going to get on with it you know a bit. Yeah
1: because people don't want to bother anybody with it do they?
0: But to come back to the psychological bit the psychological bit is really important because all of a sudden particularly for someone like me who'd never been in hospital for 35 years you are vulnerable and every twinge every pain in your chest every uh, pain in the in your rear shoulder blade uh, every pain around the neck or down the left arm. What's that? What does that mean? Is that is it that feels just like it did last time? So that's the bit that annoys me most because I didn't ever feel vulnerable. I now feel vulnerable. And you try and put it to the back of your mind. And you're right, it does make you go, Oh bloody hell, let's do it. Stop me- mucking around. You mm. know, this is not a rehearsal. And I've kind of always been a bit like that. I don't suddenly find myself going out and doing things that I, I didn't used to do because I always did participate. The answer was, as long as it didn't involve the word bungee or falling out of an aeroplane, the answer was always yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know,
0: I've always lived life like that. And I'm quite open to people going, try this. And I'm going to go, mm, I don't want to enjoy it. And you know what? Sometimes you come out and you haven't enjoyed it, mm. but it makes you realise the things you do like. Because if you yeah. don't know the things you don't like, how can you mm. judge anything properly?
1: It's very difficult to balance, though. I think. I mean, you know, I've I've got friends who who meticulously plan for the future, and they've got their whole re- retirements mapped out. Mm. And then I've got other friends who just spend, 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 live for today, just have fun. You never know when you're going to drop dead. Yeah. And my question to them is always, but but what if you do live? You know, <laughs> what are you going to do then? Because you've made no plans whatsoever. And it's very hard to get the balance right, I think, between having a wonderful time and doing whatever you want, because you never know when the shit's going to hit the fan, and also being a little bit cautious.
0: It is. It is a balancing act you're absolutely right the whole thing though that gets me is how little people think for themselves and I, I did I did go and read a lot afterwards to try and learn what I should have done differently I do look at articles that talk about the right foods and there's huge variation. You know, one day a glass of red wine kills you every day and next day it's the anathema and keeps you alive every yeah. day. And 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 this is the hard thing. It is difficult to learn who to believe, but a bit of common sense goes a long way.
1: And also you need to live your life for you as well. Because I remember my husband being given a, a newspaper article, it was probably from the Daily Mail, by one of the neighbours. Very well meant, but probably a little bit unwelcome here terminal cancer and this article said you know if you juice kale and mm-hmm. strawberries and God knows what you Knit know, drink, your own drink, Moseley, yes. yeah, drink this every day and you will be free of cancer <laughs> and Phil looked at this and went Oh fuck this! I think I'd rather die early. Yeah, <laughs> because no. it just wasn't for him. The idea of him having green juice every day. Um, I mean, you look back, obviously, after they've died, and think you just had to have one glass of juice. How hard could it have been? But it wouldn't. It wouldn't have been him.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, you end up in those situations. Where they will say, you know, well, you won't actually live longer. it does feel like it. <laughs> but uh, and it, it is true. And the other thing as well that is really difficult for some people to understand. And I mean this in the gentlest and nicest way possible. None of us have a right to live to be very old. None of us. And we live in a world where we turn to the medical professions and go, you know, well, it's your fault. You should make me live until I'm 90. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you should be living a life as if there's a possibility you might drop off the twig tomorrow. Now, I know that's very difficult. There's a terrible Steve Wright joke. Steve Wright, the comedian, not the broadcaster, who turns around and says, you're supposed to live each day as if it was thy last. So I spent yesterday on the sofa coughing up blood. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> sorry to offend anybody who is in the current situation doing exactly that. <laughs> no, but- I've, I've, I've
1: heard, I think my husband made a similar joke when he was in his last few days yeah. and, uh, you know, living every day as if it's my last catheterised. in and- his case, <laughs> it was right, sadly. But
0: the, the whole thing about this is we don't have a right to... live to an old age and when you get past a certain age and I'm incredibly lucky to have done all the things that I've done I've been enormously privileged to know to fall in love with beautiful people have amazing experiences with them do amazing things in my career go on flights and places and chat to people and these are the things I have been afforded and I am immensely grateful for them Mm. but you do reach a point when you get to a certain age when you go do you know what if that's my lot then it is okay Mm. There'd obviously be other things I want to do, but it is okay if I have to leave now. And I'm also in a position where I don't have children. I don't have those sorts of responsibilities, which creates a completely different atmosphere when you want to be there for them, see them growing up, mm-hmm. graduating, getting married, having children of their own, etc. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't necessarily look at life and go, I have to be alive. I have to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Because you get to a point when you go, do you know what? If that's my lot, I'll take it. Yeah. And you can only say that with the hindsight of having lived a bit, Mm -hmm. done a few things, got to the point where the body doesn't always work the way you want it to. It was Dr. Hillary, TV's Dr. Hillary, the ubiquitous Mm -hmm. TV doctor who always speaks a magnificent amount of sense, who turned around and said, you know, once you hit 50, the bullets start flying. Right. And if you can avoid all the bullets you're doing pretty well because you're likely to get hit by one of them. And I was. It was a little flesh wound mm. and I got away with it. And it's now up to me as to how much more I want to do to make sure that I go on and miss more of the bullets. But even so, you don't know about that when you're 25, 30, 35, 40, 45. You kind of, you're invincible, aren't you? When you're you that are age? to a degree. And, and when you look at people and they go, why would anyone be happy, be okay, content to die, it is because you've reached that point where you are kind of at peace with yourself and you don't have anything else to prove. Because mm. we do spend a lot of our 20s and 30s trying to prove ourselves to other people. We
1: do, yeah.
0: And actually one of the nice things, there's not many nice things about getting old, <laughs> one of the nice things is about turning around and being able to say, do you know what, I am who I am. I think I'm an okay person, generally fairly nice unless you're driving in the middle lane and you shouldn't be. <laughs> but I now know who I am. Oh, God, I mean, at 21, I knew everything. I was a snotty, precocious, young man who kind of figured that he knew everything. And that arrogance did actually get me a few places because I went and asked for jobs and went and did things that I probably wouldn't do now because I'd be far too embarrassed. Now I realise I know little, very little, but I do know myself a lot more. hmm and I know how I react to things and how I handle things.
1: It's interesting, though, hearing you say that in your voice, because whenever I ask you a question, you know the answer to everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: when you're Siri, you um, see
0: that's that's well, a, that's the bit that's the giveaway. Don't ever ask me any general knowledge, as my pub quiz team fellow members will tell you, I know nothing.
1: No, but uh, but but you say it with such flair,
0: so that's all right. Well, it's always been um, the thing, isn't it, in broadcast? You know, I was a newsreader for for best part of 20 years, read the news for Radios one, two, four, and 5, never read the news for Radio 3 oh. and the World Service as well. Um, and sometimes you don't get the copy until 30 seconds before mm. you're going on air. And you, you've got some strange Af- uh, Afghanistani president or, mm. you know, uh, Kenyan foreign secretary's name in there and you just don't know what it is. You say it with confidence. Yeah. Because only their mother and they will know and they're probably not listening. <laughs>
1: That's very true. So how would you feel if, let's hope it doesn't happen, but say you drop dead tomorrow, how do you feel about your voice being still
0: <laughs> there? Oh, it can go on and, and it can go on and annoy numerous ex-girlfriends. I think it probably does actually already.
1: <laughs> well, it annoys me and I'm not an ex-girlfriend. Well, there you but, go, you, know, you see.
0: But every time yeah. I get into there it. there was an opportunity you missed, you see. <laughs> um, uh, how do I feel about it? Do you know what I, I am? I, people ask me about the, the the sort of legacy of doing *Silly* and what what do I like about it? There is a guy called Rick in Wigan. Uh, Rick wrote to me and said, "I just want to tell you that you know I'm blind." and I use GarageBand all the time, and I'm a composer and a musician, and, uh, you know, thank you so much, because uh, it's your voice that guides me around the screen when I'm trying to do stuff on GarageBand. Wow. And I just wrote back to him and said, please don't thank me. I mean, you know, it's pure luck that I'm there. Have, I've done nothing to mm. deserve your thanks. Um, but I'm really glad, and I'm delighted that it helps you, and if it means that you have access to the things that I have access to every day just as easily, then I'm really pleased. So the legacy of it is that... If it helps people like Rick, I think that's. I think as a voiceover, that's a pretty good thing to have engraved on your on your gravestone, as it were. It says, "You know." You
1: don't just work as a voiceover. One of the things that you do is it in your spare time, or just because you you part time, you just something extra to do. Is that you're a funeral celebrant?
0: Yeah, it's a slightly strange one in the sense that, um, and I do separate out my body of professional work and I actually work under my own name but my full name rather than my radio name right. um, for a funeral settlement because you don't really want people turning around and going oh Siri's doing my funeral <laughs> well uh,
1: they, they won't
0: No, <laughs> they're already not. dead well you don't want the family doing it <laughs> I should say I, I trained in it because and it is a training I mean you can set yourself up without training but I, I'm, I, I didn't want to do that mm. um, I needed to know what I was doing Professionally, so I did do um, do three months distance learning, a week's residential course, and two exams, and I did qualify. And I suppose I've done about 150 funerals now. Right. So I think I'm relatively experienced Mm. at it. The reason being, I sit or stand on stages for conferences. So my journalism is not just broadcast, but I've done over 400 conference events around the world. Actually, I've been lucky; lots of international events, and. A lot of the time, some of the stuff that you say, people don't necessarily believe. Mm. So I kind of wanted to do something where I knew my words really made a difference. This struck me that this required the same skills of broadcast. You need to be able to interview the family. You need to be able to write. You it was able to write really quite well mm-hmm. uh, for the spoken word. You need to, be able to stand up in front of people who are feeling lost and desperately in need of somebody who's going to go, it's OK, I've got this. Mm. Uh, you need to be able to take control of the situation and run the event. And understand the psychology of what's going on in the people in front of you and understand the personality of the person that you never met by the skills with which you interview the people who did know this person. And the nicest thing I think anyone can really say is, you know, you must have known them really well. Yes. And you do get that on occasions, not always. But that's the skill of being able to listen and hear what this person meant to the family and friends that they left behind. And that's why... To say I enjoy doing it is a really strange thing to say, but I enjoy doing the job well. Mm. And I always describe it as it's a shitty day that I try and make slightly less shitty. Mm.
1: And you must get some real satisfaction out of doing it. I think there's an awful lot of job satisfaction that can come from doing a job like that without saying, oh, yes, I really enjoy it. But at the end of every day, you must feel a real sense of achievement because you've, you've, you've sent somebody off on their way in a very kind, loving way and given them th- their day that's all about them.
0: Yes, I'm a civil celebrant, so it is about the celebration of the the life that has gone, mm-hmm. um, whereas a vicar will tend to conduct a service based on their, their thoughts, their own personal view of the afterlife, mm-hmm. and a humanist at the other end will do a service based on you know um, their view of the planet and our place in nature and so on. And civil celebrants are purely about celebrating the life of the person who's died. And yes, there is a job satisfaction in it. There's a lot of psychology involved in it and asking the right questions of a family that are grieving Mm. or understanding the anger that also takes place after somebody has died. And it's an important part of... Life. Grief, I'm afraid, is, is an important part of life as celebrations. as I'm mm, sure you know, of having had to go through your fair share of it in mm. the last sort of five, ten years. I think ceremony is a vital part of who we are as well. We have ceremony throughout our lives. And it's actually, when you start thinking about it, our lives are marked by ceremony. You need to have a mechanism with which you say goodbye. So those things all put together, a funeral is merely another ceremony. And as necessary as all those others to allow people to come together, to be, allow people to support one another to introduce people perhaps who knew this person through different parts of their life and didn't know many of the others who might be gathered there. Mm -hmm. So that process is all apparent within a funeral. And as crap a day as it is, as much a day as nobody wants to happen, and there were loads of people who, when I said this, went, well, that's a bit depressing, isn't it? <laughs> you go, no, you really don't get it. You don't get the fact that there is a requirement to do this as part of human living mm-hmm. is marking the departure of somebody. As much as it is a an awful day, it's a vital part of how we work our lives out, how we, how we progress mm-hmm. through this timeline of life, however long or short mm-hmm. it may be.
1: And I think we put so much pressure on ourselves to stay alive as well, don't we? Totally. I think that we we now live in a time when we will preserve life at all costs. And in fact, one of the things that we need to talk about more is let's have let's have good deaths. Oh we're let's crap allow-
0: in this country. We're, we're <laughs> terrible we're at absolutely time. awful. Mm. And one of the great things you've been very good at with, with Phil is keeping his name and thoughts alive by talking about him mm. a lot. Mm. You know, simply because you can't see somebody doesn't mean that it's to say they don't affect your lives on a day to day basis. You'll have several moments during today when your actions will be determined by the things Phil shared with you. Absolutely. You know, every day.
1: Well, exactly. All the time.
0: You, know, you know, and you, you'll be able to hear Phil go, Oh, why are you doing that? <laughs> you know <laughs> it drives me mad.
1: He'll tell me in a, in a few minutes when I go to the tube, he'll tell me not to leave my baggage unattended. And there I'll say, go. But you left yours unattended four years ago, you bastard.
0: Yes, and yep. I've got all of it in the attic.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: thinking so, more of the teenagers. But this is his <laughs> we don't deal with death at all it's kind of like well don't don't mention it don't say anything you know if you mention mention anything about phil to well you should probably burst into tears and mm. you can't have that no you know just because you don't see him daily now doesn't mean to say he's any less real than he was then no. and the, the mantra that i have all the way throughout and i talk to us, and i include this sometimes in my committals is you know everything that they did remains done Mm-hmm. Everything that you learnt from them remains learnt. Everyone that they loved remains loved. That doesn't turn off. That doesn't stop just because they're not on the planet anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? We are simply a domino effect throughout life. You know, the things you're doing on a day-to-day basis Mm. affect your twins, such as they grow up, they'll mimic you, do the things that you taught them as well, and the things that they do affect everyone they come into contact with. You know, in the midst of coronavirus, for goodness sake, it's exactly the same thing. (laughs) We infect people with the things we do. Mm. And that ripple effect just carries on throughout because we carry with us... The effect of everything that anyone has really done to us. How much of that is, you know, a shield from the rest of the world or how much it's a cross we have to bear is down to us Mm. about how we deal with some of the things. Because some of the things people do to us are not pleasant and they don't leave happy things, happy memories or, or they leave scars. But there's are still things we carry with us that are part of who we are. We become who we are mm. because of the things we have done with other people and the effect they have had on us. We can all of us name an adult who affected our childhood in particular ways. We can all of us name a teacher who turned us towards or against one mm. subject or another.
1: And I think it's important to be grateful for all the experiences that we've had. It's not fair to say that to somebody who's maybe been abused, but uh, on the whole... We have to take the experiences that life has thrown at us and use that to our advantage in whatever
0: yeah, way. Right. So you have to take the breast cancer, I have mm-hmm. to take the heart attack and you have to go, right what what positives do come out of that? Mm. You know, and the positives of me are probably I do walk more, I do try and exercise more, I eat more healthily, you know, I haven't seen a, a pizza in in years now. Um, <laughs> but
1: what's the point then?
0: <laughs> well, there's a element there's, there's <laughs> of that every so often. But we've both of us got to take those experiences, which are life changing experiences, yeah, absolutely. and find a positive way of dealing with them. Otherwise they will eat away and they do detract and they do damage quality of life.
1: And I think this goes back to what we were talking about before, where suddenly when you realise you're mortal, it can have a huge impact on your mental health, um, which can in its own way uh, turn into very physical symptoms.
0: Mental health can easily get confused with this idea of of kind of mindfulness. Mm. And I'm sorry to say, I think mindfulness is generally bollocks. I really do. Because actually sitting there in a meditative state may well work for some people, but it is not a cure-all for somebody who's dealing with demons of their own or dealing with baggage that, you know, really does weigh them down. Mm. Mindfulness will not help you. Having healthy relationships with other people who you can talk to will do. Having the ability to verbalise the things inside you without fear of criticism or control will help you. But the little book of calm won't. We are severely complicated machines that really need to run in in pretty good condition to get the most out of them. Mm -hmm. And actually, very few of us allow us to run in top-notch condition. We generally harm ourselves in a variety of ways, whether it's through eating too much alcohol, not enough exercise or whatever – but the machinery still keeps going pretty effectively, yeah. so it's pretty damn amazing. And we can do the most incredible things. We are just incredibly powerful, and we don't spend time thinking about how we can use what we naturally possess to our best ability, make the maximum impact that we can make, because we have some amazing ways of doing it. I mean, just, just sitting here doing what we're doing, I'm making noises to you, and you're making those noises back to me and they have depth, imagination, meaning, feeling, interest, education. Mm-hmm. All encompassed con- in the same, you know. And, and we're the only species that does that. You know, dogs kind of bark a bit and moan a bit. You know, baboons will it's make the each right other's decisions. bottoms and, and no one seems to mind. Exactly. Which,
1: you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. <laughs>
0: Thank God I'm sitting down. <laughs> but I do despair at human beings who turn around and kind of want to... Tell people who are a different skin colour from them that they deserve less. Oh, they yeah. are lesser human mm. beings than they are. To look at people who are a different sexual orientation than them and go, well, you're not as good as me. To put people down because they are different. This fear of difference is ludicrous. We are all different. Mm-hmm. Look around. There's nobody else like Eleanor Hamilton in the universe. Thank God. Nowhere. There's no one else like John Briggs. Mm -hmm. That's when you lose somebody, there's no one else like Phil. It's a
1: good point, actually, because you can't replace somebody who's died simply because they are only themselves because of the experiences that they've had, good and bad.
0: We are all the same and we're all unique and we are all incredibly capable. Yet we have these stupid ideas that everyone needs to be the same, believe the same, do the same thing. And if you don't look the same way or you don't do the same things, you're weird. Actually, the biggest thing that could happen to humanity is to turn around and go, if you're the same as other people, you're weird.
1: Well, you're not weird, but you're definitely fascinating. John Briggs, thank you very much.
0: You have reached your destination. You've been listening to Tales from the Tannoy
1: with Eleanor Hamilton and John Briggs. The producer was Carl Svensson at Tadar Media with music from Beats Bakery. This podcast is
0: dedicated to the memory of Colin Svensson, who remains loved.